If you'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew, we'll be looking at verses 35 through 38 tonight. Again, that's Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And that's found on page 814 if you're using the Pew Bible. Hear now again the very word of God given for you, God's people. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he turned and said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're here this evening to hear you speak through your word. Father, we pray that you would indeed speak. Lord, we are gathered here around this word because it is life to us. Your word tells us that this word is God breathed, that it emanates from you, that you are its source. Therefore, Lord, not only can we trust this as your word, but we can also know that through the preaching of this word, we are being transformed more into your image, more into the image of Christ, who is the fullness of you, O Lord, in bodily form. Lord, we pray that tonight we would behold Christ, that we would see him. Lord, our prayer is give us more of Christ. We pray that you would answer that prayer tonight. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth for your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last weekend, we were, my family and I, we were up in Atlanta. I was taking a class uh, there from RTS uh, Atlanta, and Sarah was catching up with a a friend. And they decided to go and take a walk uh, down a, a pathway that spans several miles. It's called the Beltline. And uh, after class, or really the next day, Sarah was recounting to me uh, this uh, walk that she went on with her friend Becca. Uh, she mentioned how in the middle of uh, Piedmont Park, as they were making their way through, uh, they ended up in the middle of a pride parade in October. Don't know that it was scheduled or if it was planned, but there they were walking through the Beltline and happened to come in contact with a pride parade. Uh, Sarah is uh, simultaneously trying to walk away and pulling the shade down over Elias's eyes as people walk by in little more than fishnets, brightly colored. And as, uh, I think I'm getting this right, as she turned to go the other way, she realized I think the parade was going with her. So she ended up in the middle of the parade. And I was, uh, as, we were, as we were thinking about this and as she was telling me the story, I was also thinking of, a, of, of a, a friend of mine, I should say an acquaintance. He's a friend of my brother's. His name is Glenn. And I came to know Glenn through my brother, and we interacted for several years on Facebook. And eventually I had to you know, hit that little unfollow button. I remained his friend, but I had to hit the unfollow button because he would post the most revolting, sacrilegious, blasphemous material I have ever seen in my life. You know, you'd just be scrolling through, on the, on the, and this is the reality of social media, right? On the one hand, you scroll and you get a video of you know cats, kittens playing with each other, and then the next is 
This is something blasphemous. So eventually I had to just take a break. And as I was thinking about Sarah getting caught in the middle of this pride parade, as I was thinking about my friend Glenn, this thought came to mind. You know, sometimes it's just really hard to love the lost. Can, can we just together confess and admit that together? That sometimes it is very difficult. It is hard. It is hard to love the lost. No doubt, as I was telling this, you were probably thinking of people that you know, people that you've encountered, people that have come across your path that you know uh, who are lost, who are lost and, and, and searching. Maybe, maybe people you know, maybe friends, maybe family, maybe strangers that you've come into contact with. But the reality is, is when we're confronted with the brokenness, the, the, the depravity of those who are lost, it's, it's uncomfortable. And to be quite honest, it's, it's just hard to love them. It's just hard to love them. On the one hand, we could say as, as believers that we stand here together in, in, in these four walls to confess that we're compelled by a mission and vision to bring the gospel to those people. On the one hand, we, we can recognize and we say, we confess, we're compelled by our great commission. We're compelled to bring the gospel to those people. But on the other hand, if we're being honest, that's, that's, that's very difficult to do. It's hard because when we encounter them, we, we end up feeling weary, disgusted, frustrated, bewildered, confused, revolted, saddened, and discouraged. Now, the point that, was, that I think was particularly uncomfortable for Sarah was as she passed through this parade, she noticed that there were young children whose, whose parents had dressed them in, in the garb of the parade and, and had them holding up signs. And, and listen, this is not a sermon about that, but somehow, in some way, the, the, the scripture affirms that we can both hold righteous anger against wickedness and against the wicked. And yet at the same time, Scripture also compels us to have compassion on them. Now, how those two things work out, I I cannot say. It is a matter of the Holy Spirit. But what I'm here to tell you tonight, and what I hope to show you through this text, is that we as believers, as followers of Christ, are called to have compassion on those people whom we find very, very difficult to love. We're called to have the compassion of Christ for those who are lost. The, the reality is, is if we allow those initial feelings of, of weariness, of disgust, uh, of frustration and anger, if we allow those feelings to dominate our minds and hearts, I can, I can assure you we're not going to be effective in proclaiming the gospel to them. We're just not. We, 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 may, we may be willing to throw a track their way. We may be willing to to preach the gospel to them and a gospel of fire and judgment, but we will not show them the compassion and love that Christ shows the crowds here. We might instead do this. This is a common response. As Christians, when we encounter the depravity of the lost, so often what we do is we withdraw. We withdraw. we, We fortify. We set up our defenses and we fortify so as to keep out and to keep us in. Last week, as John was preaching from Acts, I was struck by this point in his sermon. He mentioned, and, he, and I'm so glad he took the time to, to, to carefully mention this. He mentioned that Peter and John, as they come to the temple, they stop and look intently at the lame man who was begging at the entrance of the temple. And I was so grateful for that emphasis, though I found it convicting. And, I, and, and the reason why 
is because when it comes to interacting with the lost and the broken and the hurting, it is very easy to just avert our eyes. It is very easy for us to just look the other way. It's so easy to walk to the other side of the road and just keep on going. Right? How many of us, let's, let's, let's bring this into, the real, into everyday reality. How many of us have been approaching that red light? We see the homeless man standing with a sign on the corner and we're just hoping and hoping that that light stays green so that we can pass through that light. But then it just so happens to turn red. And what do you do? You grip the steering wheel, you keep your eyes on the light and say, please turn green, please turn green, right? We refuse even to look at them. But Peter and John looked at the man. They looked at that lost soul, I am sure, with the same kind of compassion with which Jesus looked upon the crowds that came to him. So many others, like John said, probably passed by without even a glance at the man, tossing a coin at him for his troubles. But Peter and John stopped, they looked at him intently, and then they asked him to look at them. What dignity they afforded that beggar in those moments. No, he's not simply an invalid. No, he's not simply one cast aside. No, he isn't a worthless leech to society. No, he isn't somebody to be avoided. He is not someone for which we should avert our eyes. He is an image bearer of God in desperate need of restoration, renewal, and rescue by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Peter and John looked at him. But it was compassion that first made them stop. It was compassion which made, they, made them say unto him, be healed, not only in body, but in soul. It is the same compassion with which Christ here in our text looks out upon these crowds and sees them as those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, be, be honest with yourself here. Do you want that same kind of compassion? Do you want the compassion of Peter and John that caused them to stop to look at that beggar, to proclaim the gospel to him? Do you want the compassion of Christ to be able to look on the hurting and the broken, the messy, the confused, the suffering, the anxious, the gay, the trans, the lesbian, the addict, the adulterer, the swindler? Do you want to be able to look at them and see them not through the lens of wickedness and brokenness and depravity, but, but with the eyes and the compassion of Christ? If so, then let me say first to you tonight that such compassion will never be yours by looking within. In other words, you cannot just will up the desire to love people like that. You cannot just say to yourself, I'm going to have that kind of compassion and then will yourself to that compassion. It is a compassion that must be granted to you. It is a compassion that must be instilled within you by the grace of Jesus Christ himself. You might do good things for the lost. You might buy somebody a meal. You might walk out of the grocery store and hand that homeless man a bag of goods, but you will never love him the way Jesus does unless Jesus first places that love for him within your heart. You will never have, it seems so plain to say, but you will never have the compassion of Christ without Christ himself. And this is, this is the very foundational point of this sermon, and I think the very foundational point of this passage, to cultivate a compassion for the lost, we must first be utterly, totally, wholeheartedly captivated by Christ. We have to be so full of our Savior, our, our hearts, our minds, all that we are, we have to be so full of our Savior 
so that in looking at others, we now see them as Christ sees them. I'm convinced that it's only in looking to Christ, it's only in being filled with Christ himself, it's only in having the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, the eyes of Christ even, that we may rightly see and look upon the lost, not as projects, but as people. Not as problems, but as persons. Not as inconveniences, but as image bearers. And so, to that end, what I want us to do tonight is is very simple. But I want us to look at Jesus' actions and attitudes toward the lost. I want us to look to Christ not only as our preeminent example. He's not just our our example, but he is the very source, the very core our our very power, the very means by which we are able to have the same compassion that he does. As I was just praying, this is the living word, brothers and sisters. We believe it's not a matter of just hearing this word, but it's a matter of receiving it that we are transformed more into the image of Christ. And as the image of Christ, as image bearers of Christ, then we are able to love the people that we encounter in this world. Now, if we consider Jesus' life on a, on a life and ministry on a broader scale, I'll tell you one thing we don't see. We don't see withdrawal. We don't see aversion. We don't see Christ setting up the defenses and fortifying himself. We don't see disgust. When the prostitute came to bathe his feet in her tears, we don't see disgust. When Zacchaeus climbed the tree, we don't see aversion, we see invitation. We see compassion. Jesus does not withdraw from the lost, but he quite literally enters into their spaces. He invites himself in. He enters into places where the lost are. He walks among the lost. He lays his hands upon the lost. He prays for the lost. He fellowships with the lost. He eats and drinks in the house of the lost. Right? It's this fact that was so disturbing to people when they looked at the life of Jesus. They thought, if he's this holy rabbi, if he's this holy teacher, then why in the world is he associating with sinners and tax collectors and these dirty and messy and broken people? Why? That fact was so disturbing to people, and yet it was at the heart of Jesus, his ministry. Jesus entered into the broken spaces. In this passage, we see specifically that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, entering into their places of worship for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He entered in to heal every disease and every affliction. I want to ask you a question. How how much interaction do you have with the lost on a weekly basis? How often do you interact with unbelievers on a week-to-week basis? And I'm not just talking about your casual run-in. How many of us regularly and intentionally pursue relationships with unbelievers? How many of us regularly host, here's a hard one, how many of us regularly host unbelievers in our home? Invite them to sit around our tables. Let me state this as plainly as I can. We cannot hope, we cannot expect to express, proclaim, and demonstrate the compassion of Christ for the lost if we're never around the lost. 
It's a simple matter of fact. We, if we never enter into those spaces where unbelievers are, how can we ever have the opportunity to proclaim and witness of the gospel to the gospel to them? We can't be witnesses to the world if we're not engaging the world. We can't raise up disciples from our community if we aren't first present and active in our community. And I will wholeheartedly confess before you, like, let, let me be the first. I will, I will say before you this evening that even in ministry, sometimes especially in ministry, it is very easy for me to set up my social circles so that, that all, almost all of my primary interaction is with other Christians. It's very, very easy to do. It's very easy to set up our lives so that we rarely encounter, rarely engage with the lost. Listen, I'm all, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm all about discipleship within the church. But we're going to run out of disciples within the church if we don't start making disciples outside the church. And looking at the example of Jesus, I think we need to take a moment to honestly confess as we look at our lives in the light of his life. I think we need to openly confess that we are not so eager that we are not so eager to pursue intentional relationships with the lost the way that he did. But brothers and sisters, that can change, and indeed it must change. We must be willing, and I'm not just talking about the kicking and screaming stubbornly willing. We need to desire, we need to earnestly desire to enter into those spaces where unbelievers are. We need to go into the fields. If we're ever going to reap a harvest for the kingdom of God, we have to be in the field to do so. Oh, that God would give us such a desire. This text makes it clear. Jesus goes. Jesus pursues. Jesus engages. And so should not we as well. We can't withdraw. We can't fortify. We can't isolate ourselves and expect that the kingdom of God will grow. Or I should say, it will grow, but we will lose the blessing of being involved. And we need to understand and grapple with the fact, I think Renee and I were talking about this, when it comes to discipleship, brothers and sisters, it's costly. It takes time. It takes resources. It takes much time. I'm convinced that the, the, the days of mass evangelism by way of tracts, those days are gone. We just need to go ahead and let them go. Tracts are not going to work. The simple knock on the door is probably not going to work. What's going to work is the long-term relationship building, the being there, the inviting in, the conversations around the dinner table. That's where evangelism is going to happen in our day and age. And so we need to be willing to engage on that level. We need to be willing to bring unbelievers into those spaces. We need to be willing to enter into those spaces where unbelievers are. And that takes time. It takes concerted effort. We just need to, we need to count the cost and decide if it's worth it or not. And it will take as well total and complete dependence upon Christ of, in every way. Because it is hard to love the lost. And you can't do it without Christ. Now let me say as well, this is really important. As we see in this passage here, Christ always enters in for the purpose of calling out. And so should we. Christ always enters. He doesn't just enter into network and to fellowship and to develop good relationships. He enters in for the purpose of calling out. 
And so we don't, we don't develop relationships with unbelievers just because we're trying to network or develop relationships. We develop relationships with an honest desire to love them and an honest desire to love them out of their sin. Even in the many healings and afflictions that we see here, you notice it's comprehensive, healing every disease, healing every affliction. The, the, Jesus' objective was not just bodily healing. Like Peter and John, his objective was body and soul healing. His objective was always rescue, redemption, salvation. And that should be our objective as well. Notice as well that Jesus' ministry here is one of word and deed. Did you see that? He goes, and notice he goes into their places of worship, and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. But he also heals every disease and every affliction. In many respects, I would see Jesus' healing ministry today represented in our ability to do works and acts of mercy. But we see here that Jesus' ministry is one of both word and deed. And so our ministry to the lost should be one of both word and deed. And so often we end up on one side or the other. The church often ends up on one side or the other, but we've got to do both. And so, yes, brothers and sisters, we've got to affirm the centrality of the preaching of the word of God. We cannot give up the preaching of God to serve tables, but neither can we set aside the needs of our community and preach the word only. We've got to take the word into the community and apply it. We've got to build disciples within the church and build disciples without Outside the church, we must be involved in both. Our acts of mercy ought not to only be oriented towards those who are already within the household of God, but also towards those whom the Lord will bring into his fold through us. This is the holy compassion of Christ. It is a compassion of both word and deed. It is a holy compassion that is aimed at heart transformation. And that should be our objective as well. And this is, the, this is the greatest kind of love that we can demonstrate. This is the greatest kind of care that we can show and demonstrate towards another person. It is that we would desire their rescue, redemption, and salvation. Let that be the motivation. And that is, why we, that, is, that is why we want to enter into relationships with them, because we want to proclaim that truth to them, because we want to show them that Love and compassion, the love and compassion of Christ. So let me say in summary, brothers and sisters, that we need to go. We need to pursue. We need to pursue the lost. We need to engage the lost. We need to fellowship with the lost. We need to walk among the lost. We need to lay hands upon the lost. We need to fellowship and dine with the lost. We need to enter into intentional relationships with the lost for the purpose, the all loving purpose of sharing the gospel with them. And doing that by proclamation and by acts of mercy. This passage, I think, is clear. As well as the larger context, we are to pray and pursue. Did you notice? It says here that Jesus tells his disciples in verse 37, pray, or sorry, verse 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, the disciples, when they heard that, are probably thinking, great, well, we can do that. Let's get together. Let's pray. Uh, We'll pray that the Lord will send people out into the harvest. Well, guess what? A a few verses later, what does Jesus do? He sends out the 12. (laughs) So they were praying initially, and then Jesus sends them out. Pray and pursue. We must do both. We must do both. We should absolutely pray, Lord, bring me into the path of the lost. Bring me into encounters with the lost. But we should also, also go and intentionally pursue those encounters with the lost. Those are both parts of the equation. We pray 
and we pursue. Brothers and sisters, it might be that you need to be present at that parade. Perhaps leave the kids at home. But maybe you need to be there. Maybe you need to go to that dinner or invite that friend over for dinner. Maybe you need to go play tennis with that person. Maybe you do need to be involved in that play. Maybe you do need to go to that hospital visit or that home visit. Maybe you do need to text that friend. Pray, but also pursue. Now, as we look at both Jesus's actions and attitude in this passage, I want to now draw your attention to Jesus's attitude. We've seen his actions. Now let's look at his attitude and his particular view of the lost. In verse 36, we're told here, if you look there with me, that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had compassion on them. As he beheld this parade of lost, broken, identity-searching, hurting people, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. By the way, the the word used here to have compassion is only used of Jesus in the New Testament. Of all the other uses in the New Testament, they all relate to Jesus. So if you needed any other proof or confirmation that you can't do this apart from Jesus, it's in the word, it's in the etymology itself. If we're going to have this kind of compassion, we must have Christ first. We must be filled with Christ first. The word itself, it could be translated as a a, a gut-wrenching feeling. One translator, I don't know how comfortable you are with this, but one one translator uh, translates the the act of having compassion as, as Jesus being moved in his bowels. Now, Matthew is, what he's doing here, what the translator is doing is is he's seeing Matthew use here a particular Hebraic expression, right? We've talked about this before, that that your your inner being, right? When the Hebrews were talking about the heart or the the seat of who you are, the seat of the affections, they were talking about the the, the very furthest part of you. And, And they understood, right, the furthest organ, right, was either the bowels or the kidneys, and so when it speaks of the heart, it's talking about that, that very inner part of you. And when Jesus here has compassion on the crowds, that is a feeling that's coming from the deepest part of who he is. It's, isn't it interesting? Our, what, what is our initial gut reaction when we encounter the lost? What is our initial gut reaction when we find ourselves in the middle of a pride parade? Nothing but fishnets walking by bright colors. What's our gut reaction? And yet, what is is Jesus's gut reaction here? It is a gut-wrenching compassion. It springs up, it wells up within Jesus from the deepest part of who he is as he beholds these people who are harassed and helpless. Brothers and sisters, this is the way that we must see the lost. We must see them as harassed and helpless. If our desire is to model and to live out and to have the compassion of Christ, we need to see them not as our enemies, however hostile they may be towards us. We need to see them not as heathens, not as scum, not as vile offenders, but as those who are harassed and helpless. Captive to the power of the prince of the air. And we're to rage against that captor. But love the captive soul. The very words harassed and helpless here, they have both a passive and a reflexive meaning. Now that means that this is both a harassment and helplessness that comes by way of something done to them and something they themselves do. 
and I can't find a better description of, of, the, of the way sin and wickedness works. Right? We, there's the, the external threat, the external afflictions of Satan, and then there is the internal threat as well. My seminary professor put it this way as we were walking through Romans 1. This is the ceaseless cycle of turning in on oneself. The ceaseless cycle of turning in on oneself. For the sinner, for the lost, that's what the cycle of depravity is like. It is affliction from without and affliction from within. And it is an affliction that they cannot free themselves from. They're helpless. They're they're, they're caught in this seemingly endless cycle of perversion, identity crisis, and sin. And brothers and sisters, so too were we. Dead in trespasses and sins, unable to live, unable to fulfill what we were made to be, helplessly wandering from death to death, trying to satisfy that deep longing in our soul, but finding no answer for that question. We were standing as justly deserving of the wrath of God because we were by nature children of wrath. Paul says, Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I think that's the part that we forget. And such were some of you, brothers and sisters, we should stand and say, yes, such was I. But for the grace of God, I would be in that parade. But for the mercy of God, but for the grace of God, Paul finishes out by saying, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. But we cannot forget, having received our justification now in the process of our sanctification, we cannot forget that such were some of us. I think that's one of the reasons we struggle to show compassion to the lost is because we forget that we were once like them. We have lost sight of who we are, sinners saved by grace, daily preserved by grace, daily renewed by grace. And that is why we must look to Jesus if we're going to have this compassion. Because it was Jesus's compassion that first rescued us, freed us so that we might confess his name. And once, part of me wants to just do away with the whole us and them language altogether. If I didn't need a way to address the lost, I wouldn't use that phrase at all. Because we are so much like them in that we are needing of the same grace that they too are in need of. We are much more like the lost than we tend to admit. I find it striking that when Isaiah is confronted by the holiness of God. He recognizes he's among sinful people, but he points to himself first. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Yes, I dwell among a people of unclean lips, but he starts with himself. Brothers and sisters, I say to you, we who proclaim the message of grace are in desperate need of that grace ourselves. And the farther we drift from that reality, the less effective we will be for the kingdom of God because the less compassion we will show. And so if your desire is to become compassionate towards the lost, if your desire is to show them the compassion of Christ, it begins 
with remembering how lost and broken you were and you are apart from the grace of Christ. I've been reading lately a lot of Paul David Tripp, and he summarizes it this way. He says, gospel-driven, Christ-centered, and I would add Christ-compassionate ministry, one that gives grace to those who hear, it begins with humility. It starts with a recognition of our own daily need of grace and the acknowledgement that you and I are more like than unlike the people and community to whom God has called us to minister. When we look to Jesus to develop in us a sense of compassion for the lost, we're looking as well to the same Savior that drew us out of the darkness of our own sin. And so I want to say to you in closing, I want to say, let it be the joy of your salvation. Let it be the joy of your salvation. Even as we confessed in Psalm 51, right? His confession comes first. He confesses his sins before the Lord's. Then he says, then I will teach transgressors your way. Confession comes first. And that confession, we pray, would lead us to a joy, a renewed joy in our salvation. Let that joy then lead you to proclaim that same salvation to your neighbor. Let it be the richness of Christ's forgiveness of your sins that gives you the grace and courage to enter into those spaces where unbelievers are. Let it be the long-suffering patience of God which gives you compassionate patience when you interact with the lost. Let it be the magnitude of the measure of Christ's sacrifice to you that allows you then to give sacrificially of your time, your efforts, your energy for the sake of doing acts of mercy and proclaiming the gospel to the lost. For the kingdom of God, by the power of God, in the love of God, for the glory of God. Let this be the song you sing and the prayer you pray as you go into all of Albany and all of the world. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, still, helping, still, keeping, still, loving, still. He is with me to the end. Jesus, what a friend for sinners indeed. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess before you that we struggle to love the lost. We struggle to to have compassion for them. We struggle to show compassion for them. Lord, we admit and confess that our tendency, Lord, is to withdraw, to isolate, to protect, and to defend ourselves. But Lord, you have called us to go into all the earth. You have called us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have called us, Lord, to have compassion upon the lost just as you did. And Lord, I pray that as we look upon the lost, we would not see only their brokenness and their depravity, but we would see, Lord, our Savior and his ability to save, for he calls even the vilest of sinners. And Lord, as we think about our mission, may we at the forefront of our minds keep in mind that we too, Lord, were once lost and broken and sinful, utterly dead in our trespasses and sins, but for the mercy and grace of God. Let that refrain that our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Motivate us, Lord, to go and proclaim that salvation to those who are in desperate need of hearing it. 
Fill us, Lord, with the compassion of Christ that leads us to love the lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.